So let's see, I'll, I'll open us up in Romans chapter 1, the verse, first 11 verses. Um, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now the hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man will one, yet, will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we were enemies when we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So, like I said, you know, Romans is, Paul lays out an amazing argument for what our hope is, and that is being, having been justified by faith, we actually have peace with God who we were formerly enemies with through our sin, that made us an an enemy. And so I I think the salvation is just one of those things that we never really get, it never gets old thinking about it. We never really, um, you know, we're never really, it's never old hat or anything like that. The salvation that we have is such a gift from God, it can't be taken lightly. If you want to turn left to... uh, to Psalm 32, please, you'll see that this corresponds very well to the Old Testament as well. In Psalm 32, if you ever need an encouragement, if you knew that you, or if you know that you blew it, you know, at one point and uh, you sinned or you, you shouted at the children or, I mean, your spouse biting, um, any of these things that can, can get us all which Satan wants to do to us. He wants us to, to, you know, to be in that state where we're in the flesh continually. But Psalm 32 is a good reminder, and it corresponds with Romans as well, just about the Lord taking care of our sin. Psalm 32 says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Uh, that's just a uh, beautiful statement right there. Blessed or happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. So that that right there is amazing and that we we do it daily and it's it's just part of our flesh nature that we would we would commit iniquity daily and yet the Lord doesn't impute that to us. And then continuing in the verse in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. So that's kind of a key verse right there is simply acknowledging your iniquity before the Lord. And, And if you need to make it right with other people, then you do that as well. But starting with the Lord, you, you address the, the problem of iniquity. And many people who, who don't get saved simply 
don't feel they really have a sin issue. They they feel that they may have a, they'll admit that they've made mistakes, but they don't necessarily see it as sin. And nobody nobody really ever says, I've never made any mistakes. So they'll admit that, but they don't necessarily see that as a morality issue where they, they basically have sinned and committed you know, committed these acts, which are an affront to the Lord. So, so sin is one thing. Making you know, sort of uh, misjudgments or miscalculations is another thing. And and the sin issue is what has to be corrected and addressed. But that's the key. Is verse five? I acknowledged my sin and my iniquity. I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So you you see the writer almost. You see David you know, his his heart is purposing toward confessing his iniquity. He's he's planning it out and he's he's just gonna get it straight there. Verse six, for this cause everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found, surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place, you shall preserve me from trouble, you shall surround me with songs of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go, I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. And of course, this is the it sort of switches where the Lord is speaking now. Many and and that's what he says. He says, "I will guide you with my eye. Don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding. That they they have to be controlled physically. You know, be be someone who goes to the Lord voluntarily." And the last couple of verses: Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord. Mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So that's a that is just a tremendous psalm, and one to one that we should always kind of bear in mind. You know, if we if there's something that we need to get and take before the Lord and just just clear it, then he'll you know he can forgive and he's he's ready to that. And we'll see other ver- he'll he's ready to do that. that. And we'll see that in other verses as well. So, and, and that's one of the key things in this section here in Romans. We see that love is his motive in, in many sections in Scripture. We know that the Lord isn't, he's not just eager to condemn people at all, even though that's often mistaken to be the case. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as Paul makes a great argument, you know, who would, who would ever consider dying for their enemy? You know, certainly I wouldn't, and I don't think anybody here would, would really do that, you know, just voluntarily give yourself for someone who's your enemy. And we'll, we'll see that fleshed out in a couple of different ways here in just a minute. But, you know, what's an enemy? Someone who wants to destroy you or kill you or take you down or, or cut you in the back or whatever the case is. I don't think any of us would really, in our own strength, be willing or wanting to do that, um, you know, quite the opposite. We would, you know, if, if it were up to me, I would have a, a button that said smite, you know, and every time somebody, you know, did something like that or, or irked me, then instead of the staples button for the easy button, it would be the smiteth button, and, and they'd go down. You know, I'd, I'd still actually kind of like to get one of those, but I could show restraint, but it, it'd come in handy every now and again. But, but anyway, so, you know, so we see that it's, it's love that's the motive for everything that the Lord does. It's his love for us, even as being his enemies. And, um, 
we see this different plenty of times with the Pharisees and the people that would come against him. And one example is in John chapter 8. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but it's something good to study. That's the woman who's caught in adultery. And so Jesus, Jesus basically, um, he's telling the people straight away, he tells them that they're going to die in their sins. And he says it twice. As a matter of fact, pardon me, will I turn there? I know you guys are, are familiar with it, but um, that's another great study because you see, you, see, you see justice and grace, everything all wrapped together. But um, in, in that section where the, basically the, the Pharisees and the leaders, they're trying to trip Jesus up basically, but Jesus warns them. He says in verse 24 of John chapter 8, he says, If you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. And the the previous verse too. So he says it twice. He says, I will go my way and you shall seek me and and you shall die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. So Jesus is warning them. They would accuse him of of saying it's hate speech. That's kind of what the world does. And same thing with us. You know, when we're trying to tell someone that they could end up suffering judgment from the Lord, that's not hate speech. That's warning. And that's, that's what Jesus is trying to do too. Jesus is trying to warn them. And, and you see the, le- the love of Jesus there toward them, you know, even the people that are persecuting them. And actually in this section it says, after he finished speaking these words, many did believe on him. So praise the Lord. You know, people heard and they believed. But his accusers would still keep at it and there were still people not convinced. And in verse 37 of that same chapter, Jesus says, I know that you are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. So... You, you can almost see sort of a hardening of the hearts where some actually did believe, but then there's still some persecutors. But, you know, the Word of God is not able to, to sort of, you know, with the parable of the sower, the Word of God isn't able to really take hold and grow and flourish. It's snatched away by Satan, and they've got a hard heart. They're, they love the world. They're in love with the world, and, you know, that sort of that sort of talk has no place here. So... Um, as much as they would claim to be disciples of Moses and all that, you know, just they couldn't, they didn't believe his words. So, um, but you still you see Jesus's speech and, um, you know, you see his love for them. And, uh, you know, we saw this Sunday going to Bon Air too. And I suspect Pastor Tim will, will talk about it. It was, it was quite a thing where um, basically, they had had a lot of new new people brought to the detention center, a lot of new youths, and so the unit that I was supposed to go in was was closed basically for lockdown, or, or it was shut down completely. I was due to go into a lockdown unit, but they closed it down completely, so uh, we ended up shuffling me in with, with Pastor Tim, and so we went into a lockdown unit where basically all the boys were locked up. Nobody was allowed to come out due to rowdiness problems and all kinds of issues in there. And so... Um, so basically pastor Tim started reading and just kind of preaching the word and the, the kids were just going crazy. Literally, I've never seen it that 
wound up and that satanic in there. So just all kinds of noise, people yelling, a couple of semi-attentive people. And the, the lockdown, if you're not familiar, the lockdown is where the, the, the more rowdy, the harder to handle children go, or young adults, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old. I'm not sure what the age cutoff is, but, you know, where the harder to handle ones go. So the lockdown unit, they're, you know, they're, they're potentially kids that would hurt you and, and, um, and you know, just very uh, unfriendly environment to say the least. But all of them were pounding on the doors, cursing, yelling. One kid was, was taking water and then spitting through the window. So uh, we had to, I was like, let's go around that and just kind of watch out for him. <clears throat> and um, so Tim read and, and um, you know, it was very noisy. And then I got an opportunity after we finished reading, then I got, we both had opportunity to go up and try to speak to kids behind the cell doors and kind of, kind of speak in there. And all of them, every single one of them, they put on this front there to act like the tough guy there in, in prison. They all kind of, you know, they just kind of do that. And then when, when we get up to the windows, <clears throat> they're much more personable and they actually have really good questions. And it's hard to hear. And at one point, though, it got so incredibly crazy. There, were, there was a kid. I, it actually sounded like he was demon-possessed. Like I couldn't imagine someone banging on the cell door from the inside and making that much noise. It actually sounded like he might break through, which he, he couldn't of his own strength. I suppose if somebody had something like that where he was demon-possessed, I couldn't believe how loud that was and how rowdy it was. So it, it was just... I mean, just, I don't know what they were doing in there, just pounding and, and jumping off their beds, just just crazy, trying to distract us from talking to anyone. But I was able to speak to six or seven people. But one thing that was funny was that, or interesting is that at one point, Tim got down on his knees and just prayed. And they, they started cursing at him, yelling, get up, you know, cursing and everything. And trying to get him up, and he stayed down, and it gave me a chance to speak one-on-one. So the Lord worked it out where I was due to go into the other unit, but this was definitely kind of a two-man job. And so the, that gave me opportunity, and, and the, the kids just had great questions and everything. And after Tim prayed, then there was a bit of a lull, and then we were able to kind of go around and, and keep preaching the Word and everything. And I got spit on by the guy. I forgot about him spitting water out of the cell. So I, so I took the direct hit there, but it should be some pretty good spiritual treasure. You can, <laughs> you can count on that, but just kidding. But if that's the worst thing that happens, you know, so be it. But, um, and also for the record, I, I can say I couldn't bend down to pray because I had fallen the day before. And I was concerned if I, if I had got on my knees to pray, I would have left some of my knee meat on the floor. <laughs> so that, that would have, had to have asked the guard to clean that up. And that, that's always kind of embarrassing. So. <laughs> so I don't like doing that. But, you know, that, that's the thing is like teach, trying to approach the kids. They, they you know, they, at first they kind of act like you're the enemy. And then the kids that I got, or the questions that I got from, the, from those young guys, you know, it's kind of like, well, what if I don't believe Jesus walked on water? Like, okay, you know, that's, that's okay. You weren't there. I can understand that. But test the scriptures and see the things that, that are coming true and have come true. And then I went through some of the things, you know, like Israel becoming a nation and, and various things like that. So I went through and said, okay, there are some things that none of us saw. But, you know, the Bible requires 100% accuracy. And, you know, I kind of went through things like that. And they, they were... Uh, gosh, I think I got to share with six or seven, and they, they all seem to take it to heart. And that being said, again, it's the lockdown unit, so that's the, 
that's the tougher side of things. And, and you know, and, you know I, all of them had Bibles, which was neat, and I left them verses to, to really meditate on. And it's just a, a neat experience when you kind of cut through just what people want to portray and everything, then you, you see that they're, they're very much human. And you see how the, the gospel just, just kind of undermines anything that they would perceive as being a threat or being an enemy. You know, the gospel can pervade through all that and just, just take all that away. So, and you see that with Jesus, too, disarming the, his accusers time and time again. You see that the, the woman caught in adultery, adultery, that whole situation, you know, that's a neat one. Um, you know, it's neat to think about, too, um, when you think about the three times in Scripture that you see the finger of God writing. You guys, you guys know those? What are some of those? When you, see the, when you see the finger of God writing, what are the three, three times in Scripture that that occurs? Daniel, yeah, the handwriting on the wall. What else? The Ten Commandments, good. And what's the third time? Right here. Yeah, you see the hand of Jesus writing. I was thinking about it. You know, nobody knows what Jesus writes. It, it's all speculation and everything. That's, that's certainly understandable. But I don't think it was a message of grace, personally, even though we're kind of, you know, we, we sort of think New Testament grace and everything. I really don't think it was New Testament grace at all there. There was grace extended to the woman. She couldn't deny she was caught in the, the act. You know, she, she basically... I don't think she would have tried to deny anything. The people that were the accusers, they would try to deny, to deny it instead of being like the, the tax collector who would beat his chest and say, Lord, have mercy on me. You know, the Pharisees thought they were in the position of power and they would try to deny it. And so, um, you know, you, you, I basically don't think it was a message of grace because it says specifically when that, that happens, he, he kneels twice, he stoops down and he writes... Then it says, and they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience. So whatever he wrote, that took care of the matter. It, I don't believe it was a message of grace to them. It was a message of conviction and repentance and everything. And they, they seemed disturbed by it and they have to leave the scene. And so, um, you know, basically that, that says it all. You know, we see that the, you kind of see the, the balance given by the Lord. You know, you see the law and the effect that, his ha- that that has. And if people turn away, you know, they turn to the Lord, they can become saved. Praise the Lord. If they, if they turn away, though, and they harden their hearts, you see the effect of that as well. And actually, you see a little, little bit later where they start to press Jesus even harder. You kind of see where some are, are disturbed by Jesus' words, and then you see some, you know, they're convicted, they leave, you see some that believe, where it says at that, that point, many believed on him at his sayings. So right then, many got saved. But then the ones that refused, they kind of push on, and then they, they, bring, they rail against him even more, trying to, trying to trip him up or get anything out of it that they can. So you sort of see that dangerous progress, progression when you harden your heart. So the last section here, I'll read verses 12 through 21. Therefore, justice through one man... Sin entered the world. Sorry, we're back to Romans chapter five, and that that's just kind of a kind of a little tie in there, where you see, you know, you see the law and grace kind of side by side, where they're they're not really um, mutually exclusive to the way that we might think that they are. But verses twelve through twenty one. Therefore, just as one through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. 
For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from the offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through one, much more those who received abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense came judgment to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience will be many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through, through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here Paul has taken us to the point that all people through Adam have sinned, even from the time period that from Adam to Moses, before there was really the knowledge of sin, we still sinned. Basically, it's, it's, it passes through Adam. He's sort of our, our representative, sort of our federal head, basically, and he, he does represent us all. And, and under the fall, you know, we all fall under the same curse, and, and you know, the effects of sin include physical death to all people, basically, and as as punishment for that, and we we certainly um, you know we certainly sin against our own conscience to many. Verses fifteen and sixteen are are neat, seeing that as grace it was extended to many. I'm sorry, as death was extended through to many, but grace extended to many people as well. In verse sixteen, I'll read that again. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment came. From one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. And I like the way the ESV reads it as well. It's, it's neat. It says, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many tra- tra- trespasses brought justification. So you kind of see where one offense brought death to, to so many, basically everyone except, you know, that last generation. But, um, but basically one offense and death spreads to all people. Whereas what Paul is saying, like he says, for the judgment following one tre- trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So many trespasses. Here the one act of Jesus' obedience covers many offenses. Praise God, because you and I are still going to sin tomorrow and the day after tomorrow and everything else, and the, the trespasses are covered, basically. And, and so the, the gift isn't like the curse, is what Paul is saying. It, it's greater than, and that's why Paul kind of ends this section just talking about, um, you know, the joy and, and we'll, how we'll be, you know, basically living and reigning because of the righteousness of, of Jesus 
were be um, the grace abounded much more because of that. And of course, we know that even though the grace abounds, we're not to sin more or anything like that. But we just we understand that um, we understand that basically through that gift, we're saved basically, and and that saves us for all time. And you know, when you read something like this you understand that the goodness and the grace of God, that gives you a greater understanding of the grace of the Lord. And it's always been the case where the Lord is, is more gracious to us, much more gracious to us than we would deserve because we, we see that contrast. One trespass, and it brought all this sin and death and the curse, whereas you see all the trespasses now are covered for those that believe in Jesus so no one can accuse the Lord, and, and yet we see even at the back in the Old Testament around the time of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 18 is, is a tremendous chapter for personal accountability, which ties in with this. So New Testament and Old Testament aren't mutually exclusive. In Ezekiel 18, there was actually a proverb that was circulating among the people saying, you know, basically saying that the Lord was not fair. And the Lord says, you're not to use this proverb anymore. So he corrects them and he corrects them for being unfair. And he says it a couple of times. He says, are my ways not fair? No, it's your ways that aren't fair. Therefore, I will judge you. And so he calls them into account. And that's where, <clears throat> that's where it says, you know, if, if a father does, does well, if a person does well, they'll, they'll basically live. Whereas, you know, if a father does well and his son rebels, then that son is going to be held to account and, you know, the father won't be, basically won't be blamed for that or vice versa. If the father does badly and, but the son walks in a way that's righteous, then the son will, he will not have to um, suffer for the sins of the father, but the son will have his own, his own righteousness, basically. But it also says, like what it says here in, in Romans where Paul is talking about many trespasses. That's, that's just kind of an important concept. But in Ezekiel 18, where, where it's talking about this, it says, if the wicked will turn from all his sins he has committed and keep all my statutes and do which is, that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live and not die. All his transgressions that he has committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness that he do, has done, he shall live. Now we know that person isn't perfect, but the person that, that attempts to really walk in the righteousness and the statutes of the Lord, that person shall live because he respects God's word as opposed to the person that doesn't and you know, is, is, you know, basically continues on in his wicked way and doesn't, you know, doesn't make any effort to change it all. And finally, our, our last section, um, and I just wanted to point that out to, to show that Grace has always been there to to an extent. So, you know, law versus grace, they're not really completely mutually exclusive as we'll finish up in this last section. If you could please turn to Numbers chapter 14. You're going to, you know, Numbers, part of the original five books of the Bible, you know, so very foundational to the to the Bible. And, you know, it's it's important to realize, as we all do, that the Lord is the same, whether... Old Testament, New Testament, you know, a little different administration with certain things, but still it's the same God. He still requires righteousness, you know, same, same God basically, and he still wants all people to repent. So nothing has really changed from that. But, 
But um, Numbers chapter 14, you guys know the story, you're familiar with it. It's where the, the spies are sent into the land to spy out the land. And I, I just love this section of scripture. Caleb is one of my favorite people in the Bible. We see at the end of 13, basically the spies go over, they check out the land, looks fantastic, they love it. And then they come back and they get the people worked up into a tizzy where they, they feel that they can't take the land. So the eight spies are sort of pivotal in, in basically influencing the people to make them feel that the, basically that the word of, Lord, of the Lord could not be accomplished, which I never want to stumble anyone in that way, making them, you know, making them think that the word of the Lord wouldn't be accomplished. But sure enough, that's what happened. They brought an evil report of the land, and so then the people will pick it up in verse, verse 1 of chapter 14. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. So it's not a, a repentance type of crying or anything like that or weeping for their sins or, or not trusting the Lord or whatever. It's just sort of a complaining, whining type of crying. And I'm not at all, by the way, pointing out fingers at the people of Israel because this applies to us because we do it too and we're still saved. We've, we're saved and we do it too. So this is a, a case study for all of us. So I, I try to never point fingers at anybody because as, as quickly as I do that, I can recall that I've done the same thing and we know better. We've got the book of Romans. We've got all the books of the Bible. These, these people didn't really have all that much revelation at all. They saw some fantastic things, but we've seen some fantastic things too, and we still forget. And, and um, you know, they saw the parting of the Red Sea and everything, but we still see some miraculous, miraculous things as well, and we still forget as well. So I don't want to point fingers at, at the people at all, but, you know, we'll, we'll kind of see in this, we'll see some Old Testament grace that's given, and, you know, we'll see that. You'll see Moses. I like, I like how Paul mentions Moses in Romans, too, you know, how you see that. And, and you're going to see Moses really as a, as a figure of Christ in this, almost, almost more than any other section in the Bible where Moses really just, just strikes me as Jesus. But in verse 1, And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would not that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? Therefore the Lord has brought us into the land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey, were it not better for us to return to Egypt. And they said one to another, here's where it gets bad, let us make a captain and let us return to Egypt. So it's gone from bad to worse. They had all night to, to kind of get it right and, and kind of get their heads straight, and, and it, it doesn't happen. So when you start talking about a captain to take you back to the world, and that, that could be for any of us too, you know, as Christians, longing to go back into the world, looking for a leader to, you know, allow, basically influence us and, you know, worldly ways and everything. You just don't want to do that. You know, you, you persevere in the Lord, like the first part of Romans chapter 5 says, you know, we persevere. And in fact, here, you know, you, don't, you almost kind of wish you could show them the book of Romans because they didn't even really have to persevere at this point. They just heard a rumor, so they're, they're really not even getting persecuted yet. It's just the rumor of, it, rumor of it, and they're already kind of falling away from the Lord. So that's, that's where, you know, thankfully we have the New Testament that tells us to kind of push and go forward. Here the people sort of, sort of cave before they even really go in and see it for themselves. 
And again, not to blame them, we all do that as well. We hear something, we, you know, whatever ends up happening where we, we fail to trust the Lord and we might try to take actions into our own hands, but then basically disaster strikes. And verse 6, And Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to the company of the children of Israel, saying, Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Uh, I skipped a verse, I'm sorry. So in verse 5, so that the people say in verse 4, let us make a captain and return to Egypt. Verse 5, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, tore their clothes and they spoke unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, the land which we pass through to search it is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Honey, I listen to this, only rebel not against the Lord, neither fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us, their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. So I love Joshua and Caleb. Can you, can you really picture the scene? Think about it. The four leaders, you have Moses and Aaron, sort of the senior pastors, so to speak, as soon as the people say, let's make a captain, we're going back, people. Get your bags, you know, we're heading out. Moses and Aaron, as soon as they hear that, being sort of the, probably the most spiritually mature people in the whole camp, I assume, they're down. They're like, this is the line in the sand that we shouldn't be crossing. Please help. <laughs> we are in trouble. So Moses and Aaron, down on their face. Joshua and Caleb, trying to, trying to still the people and, and trying to quiet them. So it must have been quite a scene where, Everybody had gotten themselves all worked up and they're, you know, they're just not trusting in the Lord. And so, you know, I can see just Caleb and Joshua just saying, no, no, you're not, you know, you're not thinking straight. The Lord said he was already going to give it to us. Listen, their defense is gone. They, it's, you know, you could say it's like Jericho because when the people of Jericho, when they heard that, that the Israelites were coming, their hearts already melted with fear. There was, there was no resistance in them at all. And who knows what was happening, but they point out that the, their defense is gone. It's ours for the taking. And yet, and the, and the Lord is with us, and the people still won't have any of that. And so finally, the Lord has to intervene, and this is where it's gone from bad to worse to even worse. This is where it gets really, did I say worse? Verse 10 is, is much worse. But all the, all the congregation bid them, bid stone them with stones. So now, you can see their, their hearts are far from the Lord. They're totally not trusting him. If you're, if you're willing to stone Moses and the high priest Aaron and you know, Joshua and Caleb, there's something wrong. There, that is definitely, you know, you've got to keep yourself in check and, and not allow a situation like this to happen. So they're, they're ready to, they're basically ready to kill the leadership. And the Lord steps in, thank God. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tap in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. So here, technically speaking, you could say that they're, they're an enemy of Moses and Aaron and, and those guys. So if someone's trying to hit you with a rock, you can count them as an enemy and probably not a friend. So, but you see that. <clears throat> and here's where you, you start seeing Moses really intercede like Jesus. And the, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be before they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them. I will make of, of you a greater nation and mightier than they. And Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians shall hear it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them. 
And they will tell the inhabitants of the land, for they have heard that you, the Lord, are among this people, and that the Lord is, are seen, you're seen face to face, and that your cloud stands over them, and that you go before them by daytime in a pillar of cloud, and by night a pillar of fire. Now if you shall kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of you will speak, saying, because the Lord was not able to, to bring this people into the land which he swore to them, therefore he has slain them in the wilderness. So... Here's the heart of Moses. And Moses doesn't seem to be concerned about his own name. He doesn't, you know, he's concerned about the people, but he's also concerned about the name and the purpose of the Lord, which is really neat to see. And that's all you see Jesus say. He says, I I don't do these things of my own will or my own power. I do everything that the Father tells me to do. And so that, you know, you see that parallel there as well, where, where, um, you know, you see the people's rebellion and the, the hardness of heart, and still you see Moses interceding for them the same way Paul talks about Jesus interceding for us while we are his enemies. You know, we basically, any one of us, could have been people that wanted to see Jesus executed. You know, that's just kind of the way it is where had any of us been back there, you know, we could have easily been part of the mob wanting to, to have Jesus killed and, and see a crucifixion. So, you know, it it, it can happen. And, and so none of us are are above any of this. It's interesting in verse 9 how they say, rebel not against the Lord. So you, you see what they're doing. Their complaining has turned into out-and-out rebellion. And also in verse 11, it says, provoke. How long will this people provoke me? And, um, you know, how long are they going to do that? And that, that term is interesting. It's the same one that's used in, in Psalm 95, verse 8, where it says, where the writer says, harden not your heart as in the day of provocation or as in the day of rebellion, depending on which, which translation you're using. But provoking the Lord, rebelling against the Lord. But remember what it says. It says, harden not your heart as in the day of rebellion. So that's Psalm 95.8. So you see that there's, it's not just, um, basically you see it's a progression, basically, where the people go from complaining and unthankfulness and, and all that, but then you see the progression where they're actually ready to kill somebody and and they're they're being warned not to harden their hearts and don't provoke the Lord. But but that's that's what they're doing, and the Lord finally has to step in to save the people whom he chose as leaders. So um anyway, the Lord could have struck them down and, and uh doesn't do that as we'll see here. Moses says, And now I beseech you, let the power of my Lord be great according as you have spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the, upon the children unto the third and, third and fourth generation. Pardon, I ask you, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your mercy, and as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. So, Moses points out, you've already forgiven them. Please continue to forgiving. This might be the most outrageous defense yet, but please forgive them is what, what Moses says. And then look at verse 20. I can just see Jesus speaking, you know, and interceding on our behalf. And this is what the Lord says for us. The Lord says, and the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. So that is a great way to, to stop or a great place to stop there. You know, he goes on and he does, he does deal out punishment as, as rightfully done, 
you know, the people that doubted the word of the Lord, they, their carcasses would fall in the desert and, and everything. But, you know, we know that part of the scripture, but just, you know, you can just meditate on verse 20. I have pardoned according to your word. So if Moses hadn't been there and the leaders hadn't been there, then it basically the whole camp would have been wiped out at that point. And I'll share the, the last verse um, of the evening. You might want to turn there because I was, I was loving it. It's actually what I shared with the, the boys at the prison Sunday. And, um, you know, many of them, they know that they, they committed um, offensive acts. You know, they know that they're, they're busted for it and, <clears throat> and there's nothing they can do and they've got to bear the consequences of that. But in Micah, the book of Micah, ver, uh, chapter 7, verse 18 it sounds a lot like Moses and also a lot like uh, Paul, but it states, Who is a God like unto you that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retains not his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Praise God, we have a God that delights in mercy. He, he delights in it. It's what he delights in. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will perform the truth to Jacob and, the, and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. So Micah ends with that very promising verse. That the Lord is going to keep his promises that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's, for the people to trust in him, the, he's going to cast their sins into the depths of the sea. And Micah chapter 2, verse 7 was another one that I just, I had to get to the boys. And I actually asked them, I said, do you not want to do yourself good? Do you want to do good for yourself? And I left them with Micah 2, 7. It says, do not my words do good to him that walks uprightly. And that's the verse that I left them with. And I left them with the challenge of, do you want to do good to yourself? And, you know, they would say yes. And so I said, read God's word. Just get into the word do good to yourself. You know, I'm convinced that the kind of battles that we fight, for example, receiving a bill in the mail for $8,000, you can try to fight that battle yourself. But by simple obedience to reading the Word of God daily, as Micah 2.7 says, you do good to yourself. There, there's just power in those words that you can't come up with on your own. And there's no point in, in struggling to fight the battles that, that need to be fought by yourself. You know, let the Lord do it. Let's go before the Lord.